You're listening to a message from Micaiah Ermler, lead pastor of Southridge Church in San Jose, California. This week's awesome message will start in a few seconds. But first, we hope you will stay connected with Southridge by liking us on Facebook or by following us on Instagram and Twitter. Search for the handle at Southridge Now and click the follow button so you can receive uplifting, encouraging content right in your feed. Thanks again for listening. And now, here is Pastor Micaiah. Good evening, Southridge. Thank you for coming tonight, and thank you online um, church to join us tonight. I just love that last song. In a moment or in a week where there's a lot of disunity in our country, I love how we can all come together and worship one God. And I don't know if maybe some of you understand Spanish or speak Spanish or not, but that song just gave me chills tonight. And I love that there's a church where regardless of our political view or where you're standing, we can all worship one God. It says here in the book of Exodus chapter 25, verse 1, Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. And verse 11, Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to come into worship in your presence. Father, you're so good. No matter what's going on around us, we know that we have a well of life springing up inside of us that we can draw from when we are feeling fearful. We can draw from that well when we're feeling full of anxiety and pain and turmoil. As the world around us seems scarier, we can look up and we know that you are ruling and reigning, Father. And when we sing these worship songs, our hearts are lifted out of this place. We're lifted into another realm where we experience your peace and your joy. For Lord, you are our comforter. You are our rock. And we will trust you in this season. Father, you are good and you are in control. And thank you, Father, for the opportunity that we have to sing and to worship you. We pray your blessing on our service. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. God bless you. It is so good and so great to see each and every one of you. Welcome this evening. Welcome to all those online. We're excited that you are here. Looking forward to what God has for us this evening. The worship alone, if that's all you came for and that's all you received, was plenty. That was powerful. Thank you, worship team. They work so diligently. They work so hard. And they do a phenomenal job. And it's neat to see some new faces that are getting involved. Praise the Lord for them. So grateful for all that God is doing. And we're grateful that you're here. Looking forward to a wonderful time together. If you have a copy of God's Word, would you turn to the book of Acts? Acts chapter number 21, as we continue to march through the book of Acts, as we're studying verse by verse, chapter by chapter, looking at what God's Word has to say to you and to me. And never more was it needed than nowadays we're in God's Word. I don't know about you, but this week, 
put me in a mood that wasn't exactly the best of moods. But then as soon as I'd open up the Bible, and as soon as I got into God's word, he began to correct my mood, he began to correct my emotions, and he began to fill my heart with peace and not anxiety. He began to fill my heart realizing that he is in control and that he is ruling and reigning, and nothing happens that he does not rule and reign over and in and through. And so I'm so grateful for this time that we can be together in God's house with God's word and God's people. What a great way. And then it's raining. I love uh, the cold weather. I love jacket and sweater weather. Weather, it's just fun to finally get to uh, dress, dress warm and dress up. And so Pastor Miss and I, we, we called each other and we, we dressed the same today. If you see him, uh, uh, that's where I get my style advice from. So he and I are twinsies today. So if you were wondering, yes, we call each other. We, we like to make sure we're matching. So we just saw each other as we were walking in. We're like, hey. Nice outfit. And uh, we, we don't dress ourselves. We have, we have our, our wives to thank for that. You know, otherwise we just, just show up however. So it's great to be here. Well, I want to address a couple things, and I'm glad that you're here. Uh, recently, some people have asked. They've said, hey, your pastor has gotten a little bit political. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed that. Uh, they said, hey, he's just gotten a little bit uh, political. Uh, uh, and, and some people are like, yeah, and he, he kind of dresses a little bit more conservative and uh, kind of change some things, and I don't know how I feel about it, and man, the, when I started hearing things this week, all of a sudden, my insecurity started to come out, you know, your insecurity, because I have the disease to please, I don't know about if you had that disease, but I have that disease, and it's a disease to please, and I was thinking, I was writing, and I was praying, and then today, as I was reading and just praying, God said, you know, you can come up with a reason, because I think oftentimes we think, if I could just get around people, then they'll understand where I'm coming from. You know, Jesus' disciples sat under Jesus' preaching. Jesus would finish a message. The disciples would walk over to Jesus and say, Jesus, we heard that, but we don't understand that. And Jesus would have to explain it to them and understand that not everybody's going to understand. The prophets of old would march through Jerusalem and they would preach and they would teach and people didn't understand. So I think too often we think, well, people would just just give us a chance to understand, you know, I think there comes a point where we have to say, you know, I heard from God on this, and I'm going to follow the Lord, and come what may, things may go well, they may not go so well, because what we are faced with today is something that we've all been told about. It's called peer pressure. Remember when we were in junior high and high school, where mom and dad or somebody would talk to us about peer pressure? You know, there's all kinds of pressures that you and I are under, but the greatest pressure is peer pressure. And today, peer pressure has never been more apparent than it is today. Now, what's amazing is that I used to believe that peer pressure would stop once I got out of junior high. Have you noticed peer pressure does not stop once you're out of junior high? I figured it would stop once I got out of high school. Nope, it didn't stop when I got out of high school. Well, surely it would end when I get out of college. No, it didn't stop. It'll stop as soon as I get married. No, there's even more peer pressure, but now it's from the person that matters, right? There's a little bit more there, a little bit more pressure uh, to, to do things differently. So there's no pressure like peer pressure. And peer pressure is the hardest pressure that you and I have to handle. Do you remember the classic movie, A Christmas Story? As they're out front of the, the, the school playground, and then one of the kids says, I dare you to lick the pole. I don't know. Anybody remember that scene? Some of you are like, 
it's not after Thanksgiving. It's wrong to watch Christmas stuff or to listen to Christmas music before Thanksgiving. Man, I listen to Christmas music in July. I don't care. Hate me. I, I'm fine, all right? And so uh, in the movie, uh, the kids wouldn't do it. And then the one kid says, I double dog dare you. And then all the other kids go, ooh, like there the pressure's on. And then, of course, he licks the pole and his tongue is stuck there. Because why? He gave in to peer pressure. But the question this evening is, how should a Christian handle the pressure from their peers? What should we be doing with what they call popular belief? With what they call consensus, prevailing sentiment? What does a Christian do in a world where it seems like everybody has an opinion, but yet you and I are, as Christians are told, stay in your lane. You're a Christian. Just stay in your lane. Don't, don't get into politics. Don't, I think we forget something. That Christianity is supposed to touch all aspects of life. That there is no place where the gospel should not go. I believe that the White House could use a little bit more gospel. I believe the courthouse could use a little bit more gospel. I believe the prison system could use a little bit more Jesus. I believe that my house could use a little bit more gospel. I believe that everywhere we go could use a little bit more of Jesus. But remember, folks, they did not nail Jesus to the cross because of what he did. They didn't say, oh, that Lazarus guy you, you raised from the dead, that's why we're, we're nailing to that cross. Oh, remember how you fed those 5,000? That's why you're going to that cross. Why did they nail Jesus to the cross? Because of what he said. And if you read Matthew 25, he has an excoriating sermon. And there's others. You think about how Moses influenced the court of Pharaoh. You think how Joseph influenced the court of Pharaoh. You see how, how all throughout scripture you see character. Samuel was a confidant to the kings of Israel. You see how oftentimes that we influenced up. Look at Daniel. He influenced three rulers of Babylon. You see, Christianity's supposed to go everywhere. Some of the mess we're in is because some of us have believed in there's two things you don't talk about. You don't talk about religion, and you don't talk about politics. You know, there's, there, there's a peer pressure. And you and I, we're armed with the truth of God's word. And understand that as we get into God's word, some people say, well, you're getting a little bit like this and like that. I just find that the more I'm in scripture, it's not that I align with a party, it's that there's a party that aligns more with Scripture. That's just what I see. That's what I see. Now, I know some people would say, well, that's not the way I see it. Here's the deal. It's not my job to convince you. My job is to open up God's Word and to simply say, well, here's what Scripture says, and let the Holy Spirit work in your heart. As we continually just preach and open the Bible, we don't have to be mean-spirited. We can do it in love because our nation needs some Christians who are unified. Jesus wrote, he said, one Lord... One faith, one baptism. One, we're one. Jesus' last prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane is, Father, may they be one as we are one. We need to fight for unity. I know that oftentimes that seems difficult. What it means is there are going to be people, people that may not disagree. And instead of giving in to the peer pressure, how do we handle it? And that's a great question. That's what brings us to Acts 21. Because I want you to see, notice if you would, verse number one, the Bible says this. Now it came to pass... That when we had departed from them and set sail, running a straight course, we came to Coes. The following day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. 
And finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria, and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload her cargo. And finding disciples, remember Christians were called disciples primarily in this time. We stayed there seven days. And then if you have a copy of God's word, would you underline or highlight the word they? They told Paul through the spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. Okay, we're going to build on this. Verse number five, when he had come to the end of those days, we departed and went our way. And they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city and we knelt down on the shore and prayed. When we had taken our leave, one of another, we boarded the ship and they returned home. And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Tolomais, greeted the brethren and stayed with them one day. On the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven. Let me stop for a moment. When it says one of the seven, this is talking about one of the seven first deacons of the church that we read about in Acts chapter number five and Acts chapter number six. Philip was one of those first deacons. Now, this is an interesting passage of scripture. You say, why? Because the first church had these deacons. One of the deacons' name was Stephen. Stephen would have been a close friend with Philip. Stephen was one of the first martyrs of the church. He was stoned to death. We read about in Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter number 7. One of the ringleaders and the person primarily responsible for the stoning and death of Stephen is Paul. Now, picture this. It's been some 20 to 30 years later, and Paul is under the same roof as the person that he probably murdered this guy's best friend. What an awkward scene. What a, there'd be some tension there. And you just see, you know, as Philip just kind of looking at Paul, you know, and just kind of like grabbing a fork maybe or something. That should go to show us the power of the gospel. That two people now who are at one time probably enemies with each other are now sitting down and Philip can have him into his house. The person who he lost a great friend because of this man, now he's lodging him in his home. He's feeding, he's breaking bread with this man. This is the power of the gospel, folks. This is why it's so important, because it turns enemies into friends. Stronger than friends, brothers. They're on the same side. They both want to preach the gospel. So I think too often we can read through Scripture instead of understanding what's happening here. So let's continue on. Verse number 9. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now when we heard these things, both we and those from the place pleaded with him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul said, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, The will of the Lord be done. And after those days, we packed and went up to Jerusalem. I would love for you to write down this definition. Peer pressure is simply when people are big and God is small. Peer pressure is simply when people 
are big and God is small. I asked you to underline in verse number four how it talks about they. Because here you see mounting pressure for Paul to not go to Jerusalem. You see overwhelming in verse number four, verse number eight, verse number 10, and verse number 12. You see over and over and over people telling Paul, do not go to Jerusalem. Peer pressure works in one of two ways, I was told growing up. They said peer pressure is either negative or positive. Those are the only two options, right? This is what we assume. But in this passage, we see that peer pressure is not just negative or positive. It's also protective. They're trying to protect Paul. I find that oftentimes, when it comes to critics in my life and in my ministry, it's easy to go against them. I don't have a problem when a critic doesn't like what I preach, when a critic doesn't like what I wear, doesn't like how I do my hair. I don't care because they're a critic. But did you notice something here? It says they told him not to go. Then skip down to verse number 12. It says, then when we heard these things, we said don't go. It goes from they to we. Who's writing the book of Acts? A man by the name of Luke. Dr. Luke. Luke is a close friend and companion of Paul. So here's how the peer pressure went. It started with, first of all, it was just those people were telling Paul, don't go. It went from critics to his closest companions are now telling him, don't go. And what do you do? You see, it's not the critic that you have a hard time with peer pressure. It's your closest companions. That's what's happening here. It's the people closest to you that are like don't go don't do this don't do that don't say there that's the hardest group that we have to deal with when it comes to peer pressure we're coming up on the holidays and many of us are going to spend time with family and friends and and for many of us this is going to be a lot of joy for some of us we're kind of bracing ourselves some of us are kind of like all right, got to get ready. Okay, you know, here we go, you know. And uh, we're going to be there an hour and 15 minutes, the exact amount of time or, uh, you know, whatever, that we're going to be there. And some of you, it's going to be great. Some of you, not so great. Some of it's just going to get awkward. You just don't know what to do about it. Why? Because it's not always critics that are difficult to deal with. It's actually our closest companions. Here, Paul, and that's why he goes on to say in the next verse, what mean you to break my heart? He said, I could handle when the critics didn't want me to go, but now my closest companions, some of us are so sure of ourselves until our closest friend says, I don't know if you should do that idea. And then it gets tough, right? Then we have to wonder, did I hear from God about this? Did, did I really follow through on what God wants me to do? You see, here's the pressure. The pressure is on from those closest to him. Last week, Jane and I were busy on Friday, and Friday I have the day off, so I go with Jane to pick up Kane, and we were late. We were late by about 20 minutes to pick up Kane, and uh, normally if we're late, Kane is uh, my three-year-old. He's in preschool. He gets a little bit uh, 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 upset that we're late to pick him up, right? And so as we're passing by, I told Jane, hey, I hope Kane's okay that we're late, and there was another mom, and her three-year-old son walked by, and uh, the, the mom asked the little son, said, hey, was Cain crying when we left? And then the, the little son said, no, he wasn't. He was fine. And then I was like, oh, you know Cain? And he said, yeah, this is Aiden. And we were just talking for a minute. And the mom says, yes, whenever Aiden gets home, he calls Cain his, Cain his broski. 
I was like, oh, okay. He's like, yeah, they're little broskies. He's like, this is, he's like, Cain's my bro, you know? And he says it's Cain, uh, Aiden, and Josiah. They're like the, the little clique in preschool, right? And they, they call each other broski. And then when I got home, I asked Cain about it. He's like, yeah, that's my bro. I was like, there we go. And then I can tell they're really bros because the other day, I kid you not, my kids are sitting at the table, and I won't tell you which one of my kids was aggravating Cain. And Cain goes like this. I kid, he's three. He's three. And he's like, he was, he was fronting. He, he did that at him. And I was like, wow, I, I got I to gotta find out about this little clique, this little gang. Make sure they're not getting tattoos or chains or anything. Like, what kind of what kids are these, you know? But it's amazing the peer pressure from those closest to us. Sometimes we think it's all good, but other times it can be things that lead us astray. Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 5, verse number 7, he said this to the church of Galatia. He said, you ran well, who hindered you from obeying? Paul was trying to let this church know, you guys were doing great, but then something happened. You guys stopped running. You stopped running the Christian life. You stopped doing well. You stopped going to church. You stopped getting in God's word. You stop praying. You stop on your life group. You stop fellowshipping. You stop doing those things that you know would help your marriage. You stop pouring into your children. You stop working hard at your job. You stop seeking God. Hey, when the revival was over, you stop having that fervor and passion for God. And he's saying, it wasn't a what that stopped you. It was a who that stopped you. Too often, it's not things in our life. It's people in our life that hinder us from going on for God. And so it's not the critic you got in you and I have to watch out for oftentimes it's the close companion that's not trying to be negative or positive they're just trying to be protective and sometimes you and I have to say when did Christianity become about safety and I and, and I want to be as nice as I can because I get it I, I, I got to be real careful because I know there are people that are saying come on pastor this is serious and that we got a virus and you're right but but what I'm afraid of is that we think Christianity was always meant to be about our safety and we just think that, that we, should, we, we should never be in an uncomfortable situation. Understand that God is going to have a generation of the church go through the persecution. There's going to be a generation of Christians, and are we preparing them to handle that next phase? Are we preparing a generation to be able to stand when it gets tough to stand? Are we preparing a generation, or are we teaching a generation to just lay down and quit? Are we training a generation that we wave the white flag, and we let the devil just come in and take over are we training a generation that they don't fight for their marriage anymore are we training a generation that they don't fight for their children anymore are we training a generation that they don't fight for their friends anymore are we training a generation that doesn't fight for the gospel anymore i'm afraid that we've tr brought up a generation that has become pacifist for the gospel meaning they they think somebody else will take the gospel to unreached people groups. But it's our responsibility to take it to those who are hostile, to those who don't know Jesus. The gospel's supposed to go everywhere. I love what John Paul Warren said. He said, I would rather live short and right than live long and wrong. And too often, many of us, we want this crowd to be uh, uh, pleased with us instead of saying, no, 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 I need to do what God called me to do. Now, you can, you can dissect this passage of Scripture and this passage of Scripture. It said that there's this prophet by the name of Agabus said, hey, the Holy Spirit told me to tell you not that this is what was going to happen. Notice, he didn't say not to go. He just said what would happen if he went. Some scholars, they, they, they interpret this passage to mean that Paul disobeyed the Holy Spirit. 
No, he didn't disobey the Holy Spirit. He didn't, he didn't go against what God wanted. God was just letting Paul know it wasn't for him, it wasn't uh, prohibitive, it was preparation. God was letting Paul know this is what's about to happen. Have your mind ready. Have your heart ready. And this is why the Apostle Paul could say in verse number 13 and verse number 14, I am now ready, for I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem. He was ready for these things. He was ready to sacrifice. When it comes to the influence of others, understand we can listen to input and we can like their influence, but don't lose your identity in the process. Don't lose your identity. And many Christians are willing to give up our identity. You know, there are a lot of people out in our area that they may think differently about things. And it's a great opportunity for you and I to say, you know, I see that Jesus is the one that can change people, not the government. I have yet to see the government really work. Why? And, and if government was so good at their job, why is it that we have so many repeat offenders in the criminal justice system? Because government was never equipped and designed to reform people. You see, we don't just need reformation, we need transformation. And it's only the power of the Holy Spirit that can bring that transformation that I need and that you need. Hey, it's only by the transformation that God can turn my sinful heart, my angry heart, my jealous heart, my prideful heart, my heart filled with lust and sin and pride. Only Jesus can change that. So we need to leverage that in this day and age. But I'm afraid too often is we put more trust in our government than in our God. And our government has become our small G-O-D, God. And that's why I think some of us are more upset or more anxious than we should be. I am learning to rest in God. I'm learning to trust Him. So understand that as... It isn't just critics, it's also companions. Notice this, verse number 13. Then Paul said, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to go bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. This seems like Paul is filled with confidence, doesn't it? I mean, just, just that verse alone. Some of you are like highlighting that, underlining. You're like, that's my verse right now. I'm ready to die for Jesus. And we think it's confidence. You know, this isn't confidence, though. That's not confidence. You say, well, what is it, pastor? Is it commitment? Yeah, he's committed for Jesus. No, it's not confidence. It's not commitment. Please write this down. It's conviction. This man is convicted. Here's the thing about convictions. You see, confidence is something I hold. Conviction is something that holds me. Conviction is not just something that I I. I I understand it's something that I stand on. We used to teach about conviction. And today, some of us, people are saying, well, I don't like being around them. Because you are a woman and a man of conviction. And there are convictions based on God's word. It's conviction based on God's word as you read it. This is why I think it's so important now more than ever that Christians just get in God's word and read it and heed it for yourselves. Because it is the conviction of God's word that salvation is by grace through faith, not of ourselves. It's not works. It's a conviction that we have that we hold this Bible to be an authority in our life. It's conviction. It's a conviction that we say, you know what, when God wrote it, that's what we're going to follow. You see, God's word is the lens by which I see life. That's my lens. Because if I didn't have God's word as my lens, can I tell you something? I would be an out-and-out socialist because I love free stuff. Who doesn't like free stuff? 
Come on, Costco just brought the samples back, y'all. That's, that's, that's good stuff right there. Let's go to Costco and have date night, and it's awesome, right? Who doesn't like free stuff? But you read 2 Thessalonians chapter number 3. Apostle Paul starts writing to the church at the Thessalonica, and he says, I've heard it commonly reported that there are those among you who do, will not work but yet want to eat. If you don't work, you shouldn't eat. This is the lens by which I see that, hey, I'm the pastor of my family, the provider and the protector of my family. It's as I put on the lens of scripture, that's what I look through. I look through the lens of scripture. It tells me, provide for my family. It tells me to do what I can do. Now, there have been times when I have not been able to, I've needed to ask some help. So call mom and dad. Hey, mom and dad, can you spot me? Hey, friend, can you help me? There are moments where we need help, and that's what it's for. But understand, there's a lens. There's a lens by which I look at how I should marry a woman, and a woman should marry a man. There's a lens in Scripture we look at. There's a lens that I look at that all life is sacred, and that comes from God's Word, where God protects life. No matter what that life may look like or how it may be, God's word is the lens that I look at things. God's word is the lens by which I look at how should government, how should my household, how should my education, how should these things be. You see, we used to be people of conviction, that they were Bible-based convictions. Nowadays, I have more Christians that are trying to make arguments, and they're trying to say things that aren't in Scripture, and they're trying to build up something. Please write this down. Christianity is not customizable. Many of us want a customizable Christianity. We want to customize it. We want to pick paint colors. We want to pick the styling. We want to pick the, how the decor should look. Understand, Jesus wrote a book on what Christianity should look like. And I think it's so healthy for every Christian right now to just be reading the New Testament. Just get in the New Testament. Read through the New Testament. And say, God, give me your lens. Give me your lens. And guess what? There'll be times when God will give you a lens that may disagree with your upbringing. And I hope you default to Scripture. There will be times that you will see things and the Scripture may go against what you think should be, what you have a preference for. And so we need to understand that here the Apostle Paul, he's not, con he's not confident. This is conviction. There's a conviction that we believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven. The Apostle Paul said in Acts uh, Excuse me, Luke said in Acts 4.12, There is salvation no other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. We believe in a conviction, and Paul mentions it. I'm ready to die for the name of Jesus. He wasn't dying for a denomination. He was not dying for a political group. He was not dying for a dress code. He was not dying for a preference. He said, I'm willing to die for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the hill we die on. So Paul's conviction wouldn't let him to conform to those around him. He said, hey, just don't go. Don't go. It wouldn't let him conform. You see, culture is doing a better job evangelizing the church than the church is that evangelizing culture. And that should, that should kind of wreck us. That the world is taking a whole generation of people. And what I mean by the world, let me define that for you. I mean there's a cultural system. There's a way the world thinks that a Christian does not think anymore. It's the way we used to think. It's the way we used to look at things. It's the way we used to be. But we're different now. Paul, so Paul wrote to Corinthians. He said, and such were some of you. But now you are washed, you are clean, you are reformed from that. So we see that he had some conviction. 
And I, I believe this, this generation of sinners is the fault of this generation of preachers. And that means I gotta preach it myself. This generation of sinners is the fault of this generation of preachers. Because there have been too many preachers that have said, hey, what kind of self-help message do you wanna hear? What do you wanna hear? What's gonna tickle your ears? Because in the last days, men shall be lovers of themselves, having itching ears, desiring to hear things that they only wanna hear. And here's what's amazing, we've been able to pack out auditoriums, and then sadly, because people have been letting, hey, the end justifies the means, now we hear about celebrity pastors who are getting fired this week, and it's making national headlines. And I grieve in my heart because it affects all of us. It doesn't just affect one church in New York. It affects all of us. Then people say, yep, that, that's what you Christians are like. You preach to everybody else, but yet you won't even live it. Because why? We preach a self-help gospel. Then we went from a social gospel. How about we just stick with the gospel, which is the death, the burial, and the resurrection. That's what we're supposed to be preaching. But yet today, we're capitulating on these things. And so I'm calling the preachers out, and I'm calling myself out. That am I opening up God's word, and am I saying, thus saith the Lord. You study the prophets. Why were they thrown in jail? Why were they beaten? Why were they hated? Why were they misunderstood? Because they said things that nobody liked. You and I get to read it, and we love Isaiah 40, verse number 12. Hey, I mount up with wings like eagles. They didn't like Isaiah the prophet like we like Isaiah the prophet. He said, oh, I love Jeremiah 33, 3, but call unto me and answer me, and I will show thee great and mighty things thou knowest not. We love that verse. That's our life verse. We pray that verse. They hated Jeremiah. They also hated him because he was a nudist for two years and walking through Jerusalem. Awkward. It was. Very awkward. It's like, whoa, Jeremiah, hold on, buddy. Calm down. And you and I, we just think that everybody should just get along and everything should be great. No. That's not how it works. So Paul, when it came to this pressure, you know what he does? He says, I'm not going to glide with the tide of culture. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to look for the easy path. Many of you have flown across our country, and on a clear day, you can look down, and you can see all the rivers, especially as you get down south or maybe the Midwest, all those rivers, hundreds and if not thousands of rivers. Not one river is straight. Not one they're all crooked and winding. Why? Because the river is following the path of least resistance. And I believe for too long the church has been following the path of least resistance. Christians are looking for the easy way. And this is what gets me so excited. Please write this down. Point number three. It isn't careless, it's courageous. Many people think the Apostle Paul was being careless with his life. He's not careless. This is courage. This is the... The Apostle Paul is saying, hey, I'm going to go, and I'm going I'm to do what God wants me to do. And here's what I love. Because of his courage, would you look at verse number 15, please? Because of Paul's courage, notice what happened. And after those days, we packed and went up to Jerusalem. Wait a minute. I thought Luke said, don't go. Why is Luke going? Maybe Paul convinced him. It may be that as you take a stand, you say, as for me and my house, that your house might actually be like, yeah, let's do that. You know, I often thought that my father-in-law all those years kept saying, no, you can't marry, you can't marry my daughter, because I think he just wanted to make sure I had some grit. I think he was actually a test the entire time. I think he wanted to say yes the entire time, but I actually think he just wanted to see, will this guy ever stop? 
Because in marriage, you can't ever give up. Because there's going to be tough days in marriage where you're going to want to throw in the towel. You're going to want to walk away. You're going to want to leave the house. You're going to want to go look uh, for something else. You're going to want to trade it in. So he wanted to see, is, there, is this the kind of man that will stick by and that will keep on trying, that will keep on working, that will keep on trying to achieve? Is that what, he's, what he was testing? And, and, and that's what I believe he was doing. And the Apostle Paul, I think the church was looking at him and saying, let's see if Paul really believes this. Because he's been preaching a hard message, folks. Paul's words, nobody likes this guy. This is the classic overachiever. Nobody likes the overachiever. In school, many of you, you're, you're getting B's, and sometimes the teacher would have a, hey, we're going to grade on a curve, but then there's always that one guy named Irwin that messed up the curve for everybody else. And you're like, Irwin, just don't come to school today. We could have all gotten an A, but Irwin gets 100, so it messes up the curve. Overachiever. You got the person at your work. Overachiever. You got the person at your gym. The overachiever. And you're just like, man, you're making the rest of us look bad because you're overachiever. Paul's the overachiever. Paul is the guy that's making every other Christian look bad because he's just like, man, I've been beaten, I've been stoned, I've been in shipwrecks, I've been bitten by a snake, and then I just shook that thing off into the fire, and I just kept on going and kept on preaching. And everybody else is like, Paul, we can't keep up. So Paul set this high standard, but yet these people, they begin to follow him. These people begin to realize that, Paul, you believe this. And they saw that he wasn't careless. He was courageous about what God has called him to. You know, I was sharing with Jane a couple nights ago. I said, I am so proud of our church. I'm so proud of every single person. Everything that you guys have overcome. Everything that, every crazy idea you just followed. No matter how stupid or crazy, you were like, well, if Jane shows up, then I'll show up. But if she ain't there, I'm out. You know, it's like, I'm not doing that. But then more specifically, I told Jane the other day, I said, you know what? Our church is filled with lions. Because I was reading in Proverbs 28, verse 1, where it says, The wicked flee when no man pursues, but the righteous are bold like a lion. I said, I didn't know our church was filled with lions. And you know why that was? Because for too long... I was just giving you milk and not meat. And lions need meat. And when lions get meat, lions get strong. And when lions get strong, they roar. They take over. And I told Jane, I'm really at peace with whatever happens next. All right, I'm not, don't read into this. But God could take me tomorrow or I could be gone tomorrow and our church would be just fine. Let me say it like this. This is not a hero complex. You don't need me anymore. This is not a hero complex. It's not a statement. There was the longest time we were playing the church. I just always felt like, man, if I was gone, this thing would just, it'll just, it'll be gone. But then this week, I was just like, God, I was just thinking about it. Going through the names, going through the names, going through the names, praying over your names. I was like, wow, they're so strong. They're so on fire for God right now. They're so ready for whatever God has for them. We don't know what's going to break out in the days ahead. But I just know this church is ready. I just know you are ready. You're not careless. You are courageous. And as I look out over our church, I see a different church than I saw six months ago. A completely different church. I see a church that has learned the sacred art of fasting to seek God. 
I see a church that has learned how to seek God on their knees with prayer in tears, seeking and begging God to work. I've seen a church that now knows how to worship God even when the storm is raging in their life. I see a church now that knows how to walk humbly and righteously before their God. I see a church now that I've never seen before. I see a church now where I'm thinking, I don't get to take any credit for this. In education, it used to be that the teacher's job was not to teach you what to think, but how to think. Nowadays, our education system has changed, has it not? A pastor's job is not to tell you what God says, but to teach you how to talk to God yourself, how you hear from God. Because God wants to speak to you, and God wants to whisper in your ear that you are a lion, and you will contend with the wicked. Because that's verse number four of Proverbs 28. That the lions will then contend with them. That it doesn't matter in a conversation with the barber where before you were afraid to talk about church and Jesus Christ and the, and the gospel. Now you know that I can be bold about it. And why was Paul so bold? And it isn't, wasn't about a cost. It was always about Christ. You see, we get an interesting part when we get to verse number 20. Paul ends up at Jerusalem. And at Jerusalem, he talks to the pastor. And the pastor's name is James. And James is bringing up some things about Paul's life. And they make some accusations about Paul. And they make an accusation that Paul was teaching the uh, Jewish Christians that they didn't need to follow the ceremonial laws anymore. And they even accuse him that he was pulling them away from the Jewish law. Which wasn't true. That's not at all what Paul was doing. Paul simply was teaching that the law cannot save and will not save but yet they asked Paul to perform one of the ceremonies and it was the Nazarite vow that he performed earlier in Acts chapter number 16 so the apostle Paul is going to perform it and then they said Paul hey would you do this that way the church at Jerusalem knows that you still are for uh, some of the ceremonies and Paul goes along with it you say wait a minute I thought Paul wasn't supposed to give into peer pressure why in verse number 20 through verse number 26 is he given into the peer pressure? And I thought the exact same thing. I was like, hypocrite, you can't, you can't. In verse 4, in verse 8, in verse 10, in verse 12, say, no, no, no. Then we'd get there. They ask you to do something that you know is not for salvation, but yet you do it. And then I went to 1 Corinthians chapter number 9, and I understood why Paul did it. Because in 1 Corinthians 9, 19, he said, For though I am free from all men, I've made myself a servant to all. The Greek word servant is the word doulos in the Greek. It means slave. He said, I've made myself a slave to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews became I as a Jew, that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. You see, there's always a price to pay to reach people for Jesus. And Paul said, I don't care what that price is. You want me to shave my head as a Nazarite? You want me to pay the fee for these four other guys so we can go into the temple for the temple purification? I'll pay the price. Understand this and write this down. There are no reduced rates for revival. It doesn't come cheap. Understand that expansion of the kingdom of God is expensive. It comes at a cost, but the cost is worth it because it's for Jesus Christ. And the church today has failed to realize that there's got to be a price to be paid. 
that there is a cost. I talked to a man today, and I was at a wedding, and he said, I'll go on these mission trips. Because he said to me, he said, I don't want to get to heaven, and I don't want to have any scars. He said, think about it. You're going to be around these martyrs, and they're going to be showing off their scars. He's, a, he, he's an army vet, and he was like, you know, we get around our old veteran buddies, and, man, we show off our scars. We show off, uh, look at this. Man, I got shot here. I got stabbed here, and this happened, and look at this. And they show off their wounds. He said, I don't want to get to heaven, and I don't want to have, be able to show off no scars. He said, I don't want to get to heaven, and my knees have no calluses from prayer. I don't want to get to heaven and be, be no wounds or anything. He said, I want to get to heaven, and I want to have a story to tell those others. I want to hang with them as they're talking to Paul and Moses. I want to have a testimony that I can share that I went through the fire, that I went through the flood, that I fought the battles. I ran my race. I was faithful to the end. He said, there's no way that others would pay a price, and I won't pay a price. Church, there's always a price to be paid. And the price may be an all-night prayer meeting. The price may be you fasting. The price may be you giving up something in your life. It may be you saying, hey, I don't need this in my life. I don't want this in my life. I'm willing. The apostle Paul, he was willing to pay a price. Are you and I willing to pay a price? The city of San Jose should be a hard place to go to hell from because of Southridge Church. It should not be easy for anybody to go to hell from this city because we are the sentinels of this city. We stand watch over the wall of this city. We are the watchers on the wall that are crying aloud, warning them that there is judgment coming. We are the ones that are waiting. We are the ones to help. We are the ones to serve. We are the ones to guide. We are the ones to lift up the broken. That's our responsibility. I don't look to anybody else, but I look to myself to say, what can I do? Because I have my part to make sure San Jose, California is a very hard place for somebody to go to hell from. I'm going to pay the price. I'm going to do what it takes so that people know that that, that when it came to that church, that was a church that loved people and preached the Bible. And as we do that, we will see many people one for Christ. We had revival not too long ago. And many of us flooded the altars. But maybe once again, we need to flood the altar and say, God, the fire has gone out of revival. And we need to reignite that. Don't let that fire go out. Proverbs said, where no wood is, there the fire goes out. What are you feeding the fire? Fire naturally spreads. Fire is naturally uncontrollable. Fire naturally catches things. But yet you and I, we're afraid because we don't want to suffer any persecution. Because we're faced with peer pressure. And I want to go back to what the Apostle Paul said in verse number 12 when he said, What mean you to break my heart? You know what he's literally saying there? The word breaking my heart means my resolve. He's saying, guys, it takes me so long to get psyched up for this. I don't like roller coasters at all. But I got a son who loves roller coasters. And so I got to be a man and get on these roller coasters. But think for a moment, my son's not very tall. Which roller coasters can he get on? And I'm afraid of them. What's that say about me? So the whole time I'm just like, oh, I'm psyched up. Good. And I'm just like, all right, it's going to be great. It's going to be fun. Stay loose. Stay loose. And then as soon as you get on the roller coaster, you tense up and it makes it worse. So I got to build up the resolve. Many of us have built up no resolve to do the will of God. You don't even build up a resolve when it comes to not looking at things you shouldn't. You don't build a resolve when it says going to places you shouldn't. You don't build a resolve when it comes around people that you know are going to influence you to do wrong. There was no resolve. 
If you struggle with something, why would you hang around it? Why would you do anything to weaken its resolve? The Apostle Paul is telling this church, hey, what mean you to weaken my resolve? So my question, this is the title of the message, what is wrecking your resolve? Or more importantly, who is wrecking your resolve? What's wrecking it? What's tearing it down? Because you come here and you are a lion here, but then tomorrow you're kind of like a cub looking for some milk, acting weak and defeated, acting like you need a bigger lion to come rescue you, acting like, man, i got to get the pastor on speed dial. Come over to my house real quick and pray for me, which I will gladly do. But I'm wondering, what happened to the lion at church with his hands outspread in worship that came to the altar during the invitation and prayed and confessed sin and said, I'm going to live differently? What happened to that lion? Somebody or someone, something wrecked your resolve. What is wrecking your resolve to stand up to the peer pressure? What is wrecking your resolve to stand for God and the gospel? Understand, great persecution always comes to those who have great purpose. And we are a people of great purpose. And so we need to learn to stand. Having done all to stand in the evil day, stand therefore having your loins girt about with truth, having on the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the feet shone with the preparation of the gospel of peace, taking the sword of the spirit and the shield of faith, whereby you may quench all the fiery darts of the enemy. Where is your resolve, soldier? Where is it? We walk into battle totally unprepared, and we wonder why we're so defeated Monday through Saturday. Because we were not ready for the fight that is out there. This is a sanctuary, and it's a great sanctuary that we can find rest. I was filled with so much anxiety and so much panic, and I came in here, and I heard the worship, and I got around you, and my spirit was lifted in this place. But i got to go back out there in a few minutes. And you and I, we got to face that world, and we got to face a boss, and we got to face a situation, and we got to face a political world, and we got to face government, and we got to face all these things. But we don't face them alone. We face them in the power of the Holy Spirit as we are prepared. So when your peers put the pressure on, will people be big and God small? Or will God be big and people small? So who is bigger than your life? Are your companions? Is the crowd? Or is Christ the biggest in your life? So many of us, we repent of sin but yet we come back and we repeat it. Repent and repeat, repent and repeat. And we just kind of in that cycle. And God's saying, hey, it's time to break that cycle. It's time to not fall for that trap again. The Bible talks about Christians living a victorious Christian life. The evidence that you truly experience revival is that there are things in your life you don't go back to anymore that are dead and gone. The Apostle Paul he took out Stephen, but after that, what happened? It wasn't like, hey, I got mad at that person. They threw me out of that town. Hey, let's revert to some bad habits. No, he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. There's some things that have changed about him. There are things that God changed. God wants to change you. So who is wrecking your resolve? Let's all stand with heads bowed and eyes closed. Gracious Heavenly Father, we love you. Father, every person here is going to face intense pressure from their peers but tonight would we make a decision would we make a decision that we will not cave to culture to the crowd but we will always bow the knee before the king of kings and lord of lords your alpha and omega the beginning and the end everything began with you everything will end with you 
You're a source of life, our source of hope. And it's only as we look in your word that we, that we see that we can stand like Paul. Yes, he made an incredible stand, but it was his conviction that helped him to stand. May we be a church of conviction, deep-rooted biblical conviction. Would you help us, Lord? There are people in our lives that are wrecking our resolve, pulling us back into a life of sin that we don't want to go back to. There are people that are waiting for us as soon as we get out of church. They're waiting, and they're waiting to pull us right back into the devil's pit. The one that you just picked us up out of, like Psalms 42. He picked me up out of the miry clay and set my feet upon a rock. God, you've set every person here on a rock. And the only reason that we get off the rock is because we jump back into the pit of this world. And so, God, you've saved us. You've cleansed us. You've washed us. Now help us with our resolve this evening. Help us tonight to make a decision that we come to a part into the ways with some of the friends on our social media, some of the friends in our neighborhood, some of the friends in our life. There are some companions, whether negative or positive or protective, that it's time we say, I'm on a different path. And they can join me on that path. You can follow me, but my path is heaven bound. My path is glory bound. My path is heading away from sin and towards the Savior. My life has changed. I don't want the old life. I don't want the old things. I've got a taste for new things. My gaze is heavenward. My mind is focused on the prize. For there is waiting for me a crown, a victor's crown. To all those who will live godly in Christ Jesus. There is waiting for us a crown. But we must finish our course with joy. So help us, Father. Help us to fight the good fight. Help us to love our neighbors. Help us to preach the gospel. Help us to live the gospel. And may we be a radical church, a church filled with raging lions in the city of Babylon, ready to take over and bring heaven to earth. We hope you were encouraged by today's message from Pastor Micaiah. If it was a blessing to you, don't forget to share it with a friend or family member this week. If you have any questions, we'd love to hear them. Get in touch with us by visiting SouthridgeSanJose.com slash connect. Again, that's SouthridgeSanJose.com slash connect.